0: Warning: The following episode contains graphic depictions, discussions of death and mutilation, discussions of violence, and presentations of otherworldly horror. Viewer discretion is advised. Yes, yes. What is it? Come in, come in, come in. How can I help you? Wait, wait, wait. What do you What do you mean the third training video got corrupted? Do you not have any backups at all? You, you just have the raw files. None of the edited ones? F- <sighs> Look, Look, we, we can't redo it. The training session is in eight hours from now. Do you know how long it takes to produce 2316? The editing alone took us over a week. You have a new file? Something that can replace it? Okay, pass it over, pass it over. Wait. No, 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 no. This is this is SCP six ten. We can't do this yet. This is f-ed up. It, this thing is barely sentient. It exists in a disturbing liminal zone. Like these stories are are not good for. <sighs> I guess you're right. Hey, do I have any pressing issues on my schedule today? Anything that's going to take a lot of time? No, no. Okay, I'll get started on this then. You. Go back to your work and see if you can recover the files anyways. I'll work on this. It'll take a while. It This, is, this, this file takes an hour. Ugh, it'll make up an episode. Okay, okay. Okay, let's do this then. I've read over the file, I've practiced, I have water, yes, okay. Okay, put on a face, put on a face, put on a face. Let's make a good training clip. 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Foundation, new recruit, and welcome to training episode number 3. I was originally going to present to you SCP 2316 today, but after careful review and no errors on our part, I've decided that this clip is too dangerous right now, and that you're probably not ready for it. So, I've made the executive decision to redo all of training video number 3, to produce something more… accessible to your level of experience. I know this sounds unprofessional, but in your training, we're not here to break you. We're here to make you a good Foundation member, ideally the best we've ever had. So it's on me to make sure that we do that. So instead of our old clip, and breaking away from our idea of presenting multiple SCPs in a single clip. I present to you the story of SCP-610, The Flesh That Hates. Item number, SCP-610, The Flesh That Hates. Originally researched by a staff member of the name Neko Chris. Its object class is Keter. We begin with the special containment procedures. Due to the vast area of infection that SCP-610 covers, containment is deemed effectively impossible. Isolation of the area has proved far more effective, and permission has been granted by the Russian government to establish a perimeter to keep people out of these areas under the guise of military operations. Should any organism displaying traits consistent with SCP-610 be sighted near this perimeter, then the established protocol requires it to be engaged at range with small arms until immobile, and then dispatched using incendiary weapons and munitions from as great a distance as possible. Any living thing coming in physical contact with an organism infected with SCP-610 is considered expendable and is to be immediately terminated and incinerated. Any persons coming within 3 meters of SCP-610 infected life are to immediately withdraw from the area and be isolated from the rest of their team and subjected to medical examination using only remote techniques to determine if infection has occurred and appropriate steps taken based on that determination. At present, the known infection vectors of SCP-610's spread seem to be focused on physical contact. Drone movements within heavily infected areas have returned air samples containing minute particulate which, when exposed to organic compounds, will result in the spread of SCP-610. The results of these particular tests have revealed that most require several days to manifest, if at all, with the exception of direct contact with exposed lung and liver tissue. These particular tests show a rapid rate of growth, which requires incineration of the testing environment no more than 24 hours after initial exposure, with even a 2 hour mishap risking a compromised facility event. Given that this kind of rapid growth only occurs in organic material existing outside of the human body, this form of infection is currently considered a minor concern. These peculiarities have given rise to a series of questions regarding the possible origin of the infection in conjunction with the failed Containment protocol remains as a scorched earth policy at this time, and no concern for transmission via water or air at infection perimeters exists barring situational changes in the field Description Initial reports of SCP-610 came direct from the Russian government through undisclosable channels These reports consisted primarily of disappearances of farmers in the region and were not considered until the local police, followed by the regional police, and finally a government dispatched agent, all failed to report within a 72-hour period. A small military contingent was dispatched to the area and quickly withdrew, at which point the foundation was contacted to investigate. The area SCP-610 affects is close to Lake Baikal in southern Siberia. Areas of known infection are marked on a map that is provided to us. Containment perimeters are marked in blue surrounding these infection areas, and as of present no further locations have been identified. Incursions into the perimeter must be reported prior to conducting, confirmed during exploration, and debriefed on immediately following return. SCP-610 appears to be a contagious skin disease at first with symptoms including rash, itching, and increased skin sensitivity. Within three hours, the disease will cause blemishes resembling heavy scar tissue to form in the chest and arm areas, spreading to the legs and back within an additional hour, consuming the victim completely within five hours. Exposure to higher temperatures vastly decreases the time for the contagion to spread and complete infections have been recorded occurring in as little as 5 minutes. After the completion of the infection occurs, the victim's life functions will cease for approximately 3 minutes, after which time they will restart at 2-3 to three times the activity rate of a normal human. Following this, the scar tissues on the victims will start to move of its own accord and grow at a rapid rate. Normal human features start to disappear at this point under the infection, and the path of mutation appears to be largely random. Subjects observed in this stage of infection have been recorded as growing three or more limbs of a type such as arms or legs. The head may become misshapen and elongate or widen out, and parts of the subject may split open from which additional branches of human flesh will grow. The duration of the stage of infection is unknown, and not all subjects appear to progress to the later stages. Under unknown conditions, an infected individual will cease moving and place itself in a location it deems suitable, where it roots itself. The fleshy growth on the victim will then begin to spread itself across all surrounding objects and consume them. Such objects do not spread the infection, as living creatures do. However and the effect of prolongated contact with these objects is recorded later in this document. It is assumed that this behavior is to create an area hospitable to continued growth of the other infected. Observation of life infected by SCP-610 by staff is impossible. Those infected with the disease immediately seek out aid as natural human impulse, resulting in unintended further infections. Those infected past the scar tissue phase actively and aggressively attempt to infect anyone approaching them within an undefined area. It has been established that should an infected individual be capable of sight and observe an uninfected individual, they will proceed towards them. If the infected has lost the ability of sight, a range of approximately 30 meters is considered safe observation of scp-610 infected settlements has been established using artificial methods such as remote robots the data returned from these observations coupled with the openly aggressive nature of the infected to attempt to spread scp-610 has resulted in the Keter classification however so long as nothing is allowed to enter or leave the infected areas it is considered a neutralized threat of concern are the cavernous areas beneath the infected settlements that were discovered during the exploration and attempts to get research personnel into these areas are underway. The following are a set of six field logs, labeled SCP-610-L1 through L6. It should be noted that SCP-610-L6 is currently unavailable and is simply titled An Exploration of Records of Operation Source Point, and has been classified beyond this training video. Thus, the following are the first five field logs. SCP-610-L1, a small remote controlled rover is sent to Site A to locate missing personnel. After establishing the containment perimeter for SCP-610, the Russian government approved our request to research and investigate the area. For the first such exploration, a small camera mounted on a unit known as Herbie was dispatched at a safe distance and directed towards Site A. Herbie has a battery life of 12 hours and a control range far wider than that required for this dispatch. Herbie is able to enter Site A without incident The landscape around Site A shows early signs of assimilation by singular SCP-610 infected who have fallen at largely random intervals around what remains of the village. Many of the homes appear to have suffered fire damage long since put out. However, a fair amount remain intact. Aerial reconnaissance of Site A combined with thermal imaging have put it at an estimated population of 79 infected. Immobile infected are included in this number, however, it is difficult to ascertain an exact percentage of mobile versus immobile. Varying degrees of physical mutation due to SCP-610 are present in Site A, and it is assumed that all the inhabitants are in advanced stages of infection. Herbie observed the exterior of the village for two hours, during which time all infected behaved with what appeared to be a loose sense of social structure. Because Herbie remained stationary during the observation period, it is unknown precisely what each individual infected was doing. However, the central plaza experienced occasional bursts of activity and downtime. Requiring more information, Herbie was directed to follow an infected as it entered a home. There is bumpy camera feed as Herbie scoots over the gravel behind the quickly shambling infected person. The interior of this home is the same as that attached to the primary file for SCP-610. The infected being tailed is the one sitting at the table. After entering the home, Herbie's camera was raised slowly as to not draw attention. This action was either unnoticed or ignored. The person infected is watched from the doorway as it hobbles around the home and stops at each of the other visible infected organisms. However, it appears to ignore the one under the table, which, while not immobile, does not leave the area. What this creature was before infection is unclear. After lapping the table and repeating this procedure three times, the primary infected person, known as alpha henceforward, stops at the bedridden infected, known as beta, and proceeds to assault it with furious punches. Beta is unable to leave the bed for unknown reasons, but is not completely immobile as it flails its arms in response to the beatings delivered by Alpha. After several sustained minutes of this beating, a piercing sound explodes from the area around Beta, and who then proceeds to project a cloud of unknown matter into the air from its chest cavity. Alpha lingers in the cloud as it floats in the air around them, slowly descending to the ground. The unknown lifeform on the table, aside Beta, begins a twitch in an apparent seizure, and Alpha then laps the room twice more, stopping again at each infected organism, but still ignoring the one under the table, as well as Beta now. After these two laps, Alpha seats itself at the table, and reaches out to position the three plates atop it as if setting a dinner set. After the plates are positioned, The facial tendrils extending from Alpha wiggle up and start to coil on one of the plates before tearing apart and separating. This is repeated at each plate. After each plate is filled with Alpha's flesh, it leaves the table and approaches Herbie, which is moved from Alpha's path. Alpha leaves the home, but Herbie's camera remains focused on the table. After several minutes, a group comprised of six to seven infected entered the room from outside, still ignoring Herbie. Each infected shambles, as if movement is difficult, jerking in large steps or squirming in small ones. These infected all surround the table, and each take turns grabbing handfuls of the flesh substance left behind by Alpha, pressing it into whatever orifices on themselves that they can, some into mouths, some into the chest, some behind their backs, and some under the arms. When all the plates are empty, this group leaves. Herbie remains here for several minutes before retracting its camera and leaving. Immediately after leaving the home, Herbie collides with an object. Panning the camera around, the obstruction appears to be Alpha, whose facial tendrils are intermingling with another infected having similar mutations. The impact is ignored, and the two infected part ways after several minutes. Herbie is then directed to explore more of the areas of the village. The remains of what appears to have been a store show signs of severe fire damage as well as activity inside the building, which Herbie moves to investigate. The door is slightly ajar, and with firm movements of Herbie it is pushed open. No notice is taken of this action, or it is ignored. Inside the store are several infected persons, most of whom are standing around. However, one is on the ground rolling back and forth over the space of approximately 0.3 meters, or about 1 foot, and is ignored by the others. Herbie rolls under the divider separating the cashier area from the customer area and pans around behind the counter. The upper half of a person is protruding from a cellar door behind the counter. The person does not appear to be suffering from an advanced infection and wears the garb of a Russian soldier. Herbie zooms the camera in to confirm identification, and it is noticed the eyes of this person are in constant movement, often focusing on Herbie. The rest of the soldier does not move. Herbie is directed to leave this area and proceeds to the back room. In this storage area are a large pile of bodies that are stacked together. Some pieces of clothing are visible and appear to contain both military garb and everyday clothing. No facial features are discernible on any of the bodies, due to the way they are stacked. Atop the bodies, an infected sits, appearing to have lost its lower parts, fused to the pile, and with its upper half in a wild state of flailing and seizure. Approximately every 10 seconds, a burst of spores flies out of the top of this infected, which linger in the air. Herbie is then directed to leave the building. After leaving this building, Herbie passes by the village well, surrounding which are a series of immobile infected all facing the wall. The arms of each of these infected persons are stretched out, one in contact with the next, forming a perfect chain save for the one whose arms are down at its sides. Herbie passes by this last infected to approach what appears to have been a town hall or mayor's building when the infected becomes mobile and snatches the rover up. Video feed from Herbie focuses on the face of the infected, which is strangely in perfect shape given the condition of the rest of the body, which is horribly bloated. This infected was once a young girl from appearance, age estimated 10 to 12. Herbie is rolled side to side in its grip as its face stares motionless over the rover. The infected's face suddenly balloons in size and explodes outwards into a series of fleshy flaps that grip Herbie and draw it inside. Herbie's video terminates here. Herbie was considered lost at this point, however no one at control remembered to turn off the video feed, assuming it had cut. Five hours later, Herbie's video feed resumed, stationary at an raised level pointing to the upper rim of the village well. The video feed contains some blur due to what appears to be a slimy film which often oozes across the lens, but when not obscured provides perfect quality recording. Herbie does not respond to any remote commands, but its video jerks back and forth from target to target, zooming in and out of its own accord. Video feed is cut manually, and all connections to Herbie's unit are ordered erased. Proceed to the next document, SCP-610-L2. SCP-610-L2 an infected Class D personnel is sent into Site C with video equipment. During construction of the perimeter surrounding SCP-610's containment area, several D-Class personnel were infected due to assaults from infected villagers or animals roaming the area, in addition to a number of infections as a result of escape attempts and careless behavior. Most of these infected personnel were immediately destroyed with flamethrowers. However, a small collection of infected were contained in cold storage units, which prolonged the inevitable progression of SCP-610's mutative properties. The decision was made to utilize some of these infected personnel as video relays and dispatch them into nearby sites. Due to concern over loss of equipment as evidenced in SCP-610-L1, all three subjects that were used in this manner were sent in with a single video system to site C. Additional equipment issued for the dispatch include a one-gallon container of gasoline, three emergency flares, three 9mm pistols with three magazines of ammo each, and three single-serving food rations. The infected personnel were instructed to observe and avoid interaction with the infected villagers as long as possible, but should the situation arise where they are met with aggression or feel they are losing themselves to SCP-610's influence, they are free to kill as many infected villagers as they so choose and do as much damage to infected objects and property as possible while maintaining video feed. The intent of this order was to provide data of SCP-610-infected communities in a raid situation so a plan of eradication could be better established. At the time of this expedition, Site C was suspected to be a possible origin point for SCP-610, having far fewer mobile infected than other sites, as well as structures which appear to have been layered over several times with the terraforming effects of the immobile infected. Dispatch Class D personnel, known henceforth as DI1, DI2, and DI3, were directed to pay particular attention to anything that could be considered an origin point for SCP-610. The trek from our perimeter camp to Site C was uneventful. There is no evidence of any native animal life in the area. As Site C is approached, there is a noticeable rise in the temperature within the last 30 meters of the trip that necessitates removal of the heavy, cold-based coverings that were provided. The temperature rises again, sharply, at the entrance to Site C proper, which requires a further shedding of garments for fear of heatstroke. stroke. Site C is described as being heavily humid and around 32 degrees Celsius, or 89 degrees Fahrenheit. One of the first immediately noticed traits about Site C is an array of immobile pylons, which encircle what is believed to be the entirety of the site. Separated by an apparent distance of five to six meters, each pylon appears to be two to four infected persons fused together in one spot. On some of these pylons, features such as faces or anuses are still visible in addition to several other holes, which do not naturally occur, all appearing to act as heat vents, Where the heat is generated is unknown. Current belief is that this is an advanced stage of SCP-610 terraforming its environment to facilitate spread of itself. DI-2, who was furthest along in progression of SCP-610, of the three by a number of hours, begins to seizure after only a few minutes in Site-C during the examination of the pylons. The progression to the scar tissue phase of SCP-610 infection is observed in full course as Di2 spasms on the ground, his entire body being overtaken by the sickly tan flesh almost entirely after 45 seconds. Di2 is terminated by a gunshot from Di1, and his equipment is left where it is. The spread of SCP-610 over Di2 continues even after death of the body until all movement ceases. As Perimeter Control is relaying new instructions to Di1 and Di3 regarding the situation, there is a shift in the ground covering in Site C, where Di2's body is. Video feed shows the flesh-like growth splitting open beneath his body, and a series of ropey tendrils coming from within the gap to pull his corpse inside. This opening closes up quickly, and the total time elapsed is 3 seconds. As Di1 and Di3 decide to act quickly in these hotter temperatures, fearing the same fate, they proceed to the village center and encounter another previously unknown phenomenon. In the precise center of town, rising above what was the community well, is a sphere suspended by angled supports comprised of SCP-610 flesh. This ball is riddled with the features of humans in early stages of SCP-610 infection, as well as a good number assumed to be in later stages. A number of specimens of non-human life, such as deer and bears, are also visible within the mass. The entire sphere of flesh pulses at roughly a five-second interval, and with each pulse emits a ring of spore-like material from its equator. This material floats to the ground and appears to be absorbed into the covered environment. DI-3 begins to douse the sphere with the provided gasoline, and when questioned by a panicking DI-1, explains that this looks like a good thing to burn as any. At this point, perimeter control has ceased giving commands due to the rapid deterioration of events. There is no reaction from anything within sight c to any of this activity until the precise moment at which a lit emergency flare is applied to the spherical mass, which immediately goes up in flames. The remote feed plays back a noise from an unknown location that seems to come from a location far outside of Site C, but is reported as being heard even by perimeter control by both Sites C and A. This noise is described as both explosive, as if multiple high yield charges were detonated on the mountainside, and alive, like a large feral creature roaring. Within 15 seconds following the sound's dissipation, Site A reported that a series of explosions had occurred within the village. Five seconds after this report, the spherical mass in the middle of Site C explodes. DI-1 and DI-3 are thrown by the blast. DI-3 is confirmed deceased by DI-1 after regaining his footing, having suffered injury from stone shrapnel from the well. DI-1 is able to report that he has bruises and ringing ears, but aside from the rapidly spreading SCP-610 infection, he suffered no blast damage. During this recording of footage, DI-1 had his video equipment removed and was looking into it. Due to the angle of recording, it is unknown precisely what occurred in Site-C, but something draws DI-1's attention back to the center of town, where he stares for several moments, and then is pulled in the opposite direction. His video equipment falling to the ground and recording in a skyward direction. The last moments of footage from DI1's video unit display a humanoid figure moving through the air followed by the sound of an impact in the same direction. Within three seconds of this event, an unknown creature steps upon the recording equipment and destroys it. Perimeter control remained on high alert for a full 24 hours at all locations, without any incident following the event. Proceed to the next document, SCP-610-L3 SCP-610-L3 Initial discovery of tunnel entrances at Site A The destruction caused by the rapid collapse of the Site C explosion attempt during SCP-610-L2 resulted in a series of unexpected events in Site A As the strange spherical formation in Site C was burned and destroyed, the SCP-610 infected inhabiting Site A were recorded by aerial drones growing into seizures and convulsions. The immobile SCP-610 infected rapidly shriveled and died along with all of the flesh material spread across inanimate objects within the village. The mobile SCP-610 infected, who were able to regain their footing, all proceeded to what appears to have formerly been an upper-class residence and entered the building. As the infected entered this dwelling, it suffered a foundational collapse, revealing the presence of a sinkhole beneath it. The size of the hole in relation to the structure above it posed an impossibility for an entire building to collapse, suggesting something within the hole applied force directly to the structure with the intent to pull it inside and expose the hole. The revealed hole is approximately large enough to accommodate three grown men standing shoulder to shoulder. Light sources applied by remote drones fail to penetrate further than 4 meters in depth into the hole, though objects dropped into the hole do not produce an impact sound, suggesting a bottom potentially more than a 1,000 meters down. Research of the exterior of the Site-A hole was only able to be carried out for two hours' time. Samples of the atmosphere in Site A indicated a complete death of SCP 610 related materials. All infectious life that did not evacuate into the hole died above ground and quickly became shriveled husks. Manned exploration of Site A was approved and commenced immediately. In the span of 30 minutes, a total of three research teams, consisting of two to three research staff and four to five armed escort, were each deployed, setting up stations within the remains of the village samples of deceased 610 infected and converted matter were sent back to perimeter hq for processing and transport one team was able to recover a small sample of still living scp-610 tissue substance from a building and pack it up for research within the second hour of exploration of site a series of echo reverberation units were set up surrounding the hole with the intent of getting an accurate mapping of the hole and possible branch tunnels At the end of the second hour, before the echo units could be activated, seismic activity began to occur within Site A. Two teams of the original three remained on site, the third en route back to Perimeter with samples. The third team was instructed to proceed back to Perimeter HQ when seismic activity began, and was told that Site A should not be returned to for assistance. Seismic activity at Site A capped at a 2.3 Richter level before petering off. Immediately following the seismic event, a torrent of SCP-610 spores erupted from the hole and layered the area around it for a span of 50 meters. As all staff on site were in Level A hazardous material suits, the spore burst was startling, but did not lead to any infections. As the eruption was being reported, both teams at Site A came under attack from aerial lifeforms infected with SCP-610, These organisms were captured by the remote drone video equipment and showed extremely advanced stages of infection. It is impossible to tell what they mutated from to this present state. Many of the avian creatures attacked by splitting their heads in half and clamping them against research members, pulling them into the air, and dropping them into the hole when possible. These avian infected proved vulnerable to small arms fire. In dispatching them, a total of two research staff were lost into the hole and one injured due to crossfire. The injured staff was put down immediately upon showing signs of infection due to his suit breach. Before video and radio contact was lost with the remaining teams inside Site A, a seismic event began to occur starting at the 1 to 1.5 range in scale. Attention was directed to the hole to prepare for a second assault. A second spore burst erupted from the hole during the rising seismic activity. At one point, where scales registered a 3 to 3.5 in force, a new unseen SCP-610 entity began to emerge from the hole. The only footage captured of this creature depicts an engorged human head approximately 20 times larger than normal, pressing itself out of the hole with no discernible body. Video and radio contact were lost as seismic forces increased to a 7 on the scale for 2 seconds duration, then abruptly ceased. Further aerial surveillance of the Site A hole and area depicts zero activity and no traces of the research team or them ever having been there. All personnel and equipment are considered lost. Proceed to next document, SCP-610-L4. SCP-610-L4, Unmanned Exploration of the Site-A Tunnels Events regarding the discovery, research, and handling of SCP-610 rapidly degraded to a point where fail-safe options were being considered, For over one hour, nothing further happened at Site-A following the loss of the research teams during the seismic events in the previous file, and subsequent contact with the previously unseen SCP-610 lifeforms. With the absence of activity at Site-A, a a remote drone dispatch was authorized in two parts. The first part would drop a remote relay device at the entrance to the Site-A sinkhole, and the second part would dispatch a drone directly into the hole to relay its data to the remote relay for transmission back to HQ. Drones on site were powered by solar energy with a battery maintaining a four-hour charge. Attached is the video log recovered from the Site A sinkhole before its loss. Attached is the video log recovered from the Site A sinkhole drone before its loss. Audio from the outside world fades away as camera angles itself down and peers into the darkness within the sinkhole. After approximately 2 minutes of descent, lights on the drone activate and illuminate a roughly dug shaft. Initially it is unclear what could have created the hole, but at a glance it would appear the shaft was created by a single event rather than dug over time. At about 15 meters descent, there are traces of SCP-610 material attached to the dirt and stuck to the rocks. The material is dormant, but retains its texture and appearance, unlike samples from above ground level, which shrivel and dry rapidly. There is a possible connection with this material and the events last recorded during file L3. The descent continues. At 100 meters in depth, branch tunnels become visible in the walls of the sinkhole. Panning of the camera reveals small tunnels branching out at, a per- at apparently random intervals, but which are not restricted to any one side of the hole. These tunnels are considered too small for any useful exploration to occur. Descent continues. Increase in density of SCP-610 materials on the walls is noted as depth increases. At 250 meters, the bottom of the sinkhole becomes visible, and the tunnel slopes sharply, suggesting unnatural formation, which was already suspected. Drone video shifts to illuminate this tunnel, and drone proceeds forward through the area, SCP-610 coats the entirety of the tunnel now, and care is taken to keep the drone from crumbing in contact with the surface. Movement is detected about 5 meters ahead. Lights on the drone are dimmed, and weapons come online. The RSCP-610 drone is equipped with a 5.56mm machine gun containing 50 rounds of ammo. This is meant to be used to deter wildlife away from the drone and defend against aggression when possible rather than to dispatch a target, although it is fully capable of handling human aggressors in small groups. Camera focus turns to the moving mass of flesh ahead at about 3 meters. After focus clears, the movement appears to be coming from what appears to be a deer, uninfected, wriggling in the grips of tendrils composed of SCP-610 material. The deer is being suspended above ground with unclear intent the drone is moved past the trapped deer while holding it in view of the camera until safely away. Nothing occurs with the deer, and the drone proceeds past, undisturbed. The previously fairly level ground of the tunnel displays large humps in apparently random placement about 5 meters ahead of the drone, about 30 meters past the encountered deer. Upon approach, these lumps turn out to be similar to the infected villagers who escape from Site A into the sinkhole after the destruction of Site C. The sound of rushing water is now detected, and the drone is pushed forward. At about 100 meters further into the tunnel, the sound of running water is now deafening. Drone lights reveal a running stream of water, potentially from one of the adjacent rivers in the area. A sample vial is placed in the water, allowed to collect, and then released with an active tracking beacon. Later recovery of the sample indicates no SCP-610 contamination of groundwater. The tunnel splits in two at this point. One tunnel leads around the river and then seems to slope downwards, while the other is directly above a light source in the ceiling. The second one is selected to facilitate recovery of the drone. During adjustment of the drone's flight path, it comes in contact with a portion of the tunnel wall coded in SCP-610, causing a deep gash in the propeller of the drone, which is already healing over when the camera focuses on the impact point. The drone proceeds upwards. About 300 meters of upwards travel, taking approximately 45 minutes, results in the drone emerging into a windy section of mountain where it is directed to stay low. Camera panning of the area reveals what may have once been a village, long since abandoned. The precise location is unclear, but it is assumed to be in the vicinity of Site B, judging from estimates in travel by the drone. The buildings here are coated in deceased layers of SCP-610, and unlike other buildings in Site A and Site B which were coated in SCP-610, these buildings appear to be constructed directly from the tissue substance. After a cursory scan of Site B, it is determined that there is no life here, either natural or SCP-610 related, so the drone is directed back into the tunnel, as the winds around the area make aerial recovery impossible. Upon descent into the tunnel, a deep roaring sound fills the audio and video feed becomes choppy as something blocks the signal. During the periods in which connection to the drone is clearest, its camera and weapon are angled downward and propellers slow in speed to allow a faster drop. Video feed becomes entirely clear for the final two minutes before the feed is lost. Rushing up towards the drone from the area below is what appears to be a large human face stretched to 20 times its proportions with no features save those created by the SCP-610 material. There are eye sockets, but no eyes. A mouth, but no teeth. The drone fires upon this rushing mass of SCP-610, but the bullets do not deter it. Impact points remaining visible for several seconds before closing over themselves. There is no room in the tunnel for the drone to take evasive action, and it is swallowed entirely by the mass. RSCP-610 is considered lost until three hours later, when the feed unexpectedly returns. Video feed from the the drone appears to show a series of structures illuminated by one of the two lights on the drone. The camera pans around without instructions from the remote relays, or HQ, capturing a vast number of shambling entities within the area. SCP-610 material moves over the lens of the drone, and video feed is permanently severed. Manned exploration due to this event was approved. Results are in document SCP-610-L5. SCP-610-L5, manned exploration of the Site-A tunnels. Approval from Central HQ was granted for a manned assault excursion into the tunnels beneath Site A to try to ascertain the extent of the SCP-610 infection. The destruction of Site A and Site C have established that SCP-610 can be contained and destroyed, making the source of infection the top priority. The initial ascent into the tunnel consists of five teams, two research and three assault, along with enough equipment to establish an underground base of operations. Descent into the tunnels was established, using pulley systems and a lift to move equipment. Assault teams were the first to descend, armed with flare units to clean SCP-610 out of the area. All teams were able to descend without incident, and flame units took point, providing an undisturbed journey towards the water source where the RSCP-610 drone was lost. Base camp for underground SCP-610 operations resides at the bottom of a three-way junction, four if the water flow is included. The first pathway is that which led from Site A to Cavern HQ. The second is the pathway to the ruined village residing in the mountains above where our SCP-610 was destroyed by a large unknown SCP-610 entity. The third pathway heads west and seems to follow the flow of the water for an unknown distance. The cavern area here is quite large and supported by a number of rock formations that are coated with decayed SCP-610 material. The state of this material suggests great age and appears to reinforce the structural supports. Whether this is intentional or coincidental is unknown. The two research teams split activities between building Cavern HQ and collecting samples of SCP-610 in various states. No contagious materials were detected within this area, and the creature recorded by unmanned drones did not appear at any point to the cavern staff. Of the five teams, three were ordered to proceed down the unexplored pathway while an aerial drone was prepped for a second recon of the vertical shaft. SCP-610 infection did not appear in the third pathway until approximately 3 kilometers, and serious infection did not appear until 16 kilometers in. Even after the lengths traveled by the assault teams, no SCP-610 infectious lifeforms were encountered and the fleshy material coating the cavern walls posed no threat to the team. The most significant reports at this time were the increasing thickness of the material, suggesting a source and a complete lack of SCP-610 contamination in the water. As a test, a sample of SCP-610 was cut away from the cavern wall and placed in the flow of the water. It exhibited no unusual reactions, but was quickly swept away by the current. At 20 kilometers in, the leader of the assault teams requested a transport buggy be dispatched to them. One was available at the above-ground HQ, however, it would take time to move it to the cavern HQ, and then remote drive it to the teams. Rations provided to the assault teams were sufficient, so camp was established while the buggy was moved and readied. During this time, an aerial drone was also sent to explore the vertical shaft. The results of this exploration were placed on hold with the arrival of the buggy at Cavern HQ, and ultimately concluded in document (laughs) The buggy was navigated to the assault team encampment with no events en route. However, upon arrival and preparation to continue the exploration, the assault teams came under attack by a number of large SCP-610 infected lifeforms that emerged from the area ahead of them. Video recovered from the assault team cameras showed them caught off guard as the SCP-610 infected made no sound and were undetectable. On one film for 1 to 2 seconds, it appears that some of the creatures are coming out of the SCP-610 materials on the wall and not emerging from them so much as being created by the material and then breaking away to act independently. During this assault, in attempts to protect the buggy, Members were lost to the water currents, and contact with them was lost. Contact was regained, however, and is recorded in SCP-610-L6. The remainder of the assault team is now consisted of 3 members, armed with a single flame unit. Use of this unit to repel the assault proved vital, as standard firearms did minimal damage to the infected creature. These infected creatures show minimal traits to associate them with any known form of life in the region giving rise to the belief they may have been spawned by the SCP-610 infection itself as a form of defense. No further casualties were suffered during the raid, and the remaining members managed to eliminate all attacking infected, allowing them to continue with exploration with added orders to attempt to locate the lost team members. A further 20 kilometers into the tunnel, the river separated from the tunnel pathway, and the team was instructed to abandon the recovery order given the inability to navigate the waters safely. A total time of passed before the remaining assault team reached the end of the tunnel. At the perimeter of the area now known as Site B, the team came under assault again from a smaller number of SCP-610 that were much larger in size. These affected appeared in the tunnel as if they were lying in wait for the approaching team. These creatures were dispatched using the flame unit, although all fuel for the unit was expended in this act. The assault team was now limited to standard weapons and short-range personal flame units. A time lapse of 5 minutes is allowed to pass before the team proceeds further into Site B, cautious of further assaults by SCP-610 infected. The tunnel widens out into what appears to have once been a village of indeterminable age. The construction of the buildings in the area are primitive compared to the settlements at Site A and C and are of clearly human construction. Many buildings rest at angles or slants, suggesting they were disturbed by a cave-in. Of interest is a building that appears to be a church with a working clock tower. This building is built atop the remains of two older buildings that have fallen completely and has a visibly stable foundation. Surrounding all structures in this area is a depression in the ground, with a substance resembling a liquefied form of SCP-610 fleshy materials. The pool moves as if acted upon by minute and unseen forces, rippling outward from invisible contact points and rolling in waves from unfelt winds. The team avoids this pool at all times, and proceeds through the ruins slowly on stable foundations, where possible, making the church their target area. Within the church are pews, as would be expected. However, there are only four, with one of them shattered, while the building itself could accommodate as many as twenty. The three intact pews are arranged in a 2-1 formation facing a pulpit. There is no trace of dust on any surface, the entire area appearing to be immaculately clean given the location and believed age. Behind the pulpit is a hole in the floor exposing an area of the SCP-610 pool beneath the building. The church and ruins appear to be uninhabited, and exploration of the church proper is uneventful until the clock tower bell tolls. This tolling triggers a shudder in the building, followed by human screams from the ceiling, lights shown upon the ceiling reveal a large mass of scp-610 from which descend a series of six wooden circles strapped to each circle is a living human coated entirely from neck to toe in scp-610 but having an exposed head which appears to be uninfected these human captives scream as the bell continues toll and the circles move to the ground The team begins to move towards one to investigate, when an unknown creature cries from outside of the building, prompting them to take cover in the shadows near the pulpit. Light sources are extinguished, pitching the entire area into darkness. Night vision is left off to avoid revealing the team's location. Sounds continue to emit from outside the church, drawing closer but lower than the frantic screams of the captive humans. At least one noticed the team, as the captive humans often call out to be saved. From the entrance to the church, a candle lights one side of the doorway, then one on the other side. A figure is seen holding a small torch and moving back and forth between a series of candles to light the doorway. The flame is then applied to a rope, coated in SCP-610, which quickly ignites and spreads up to a peculiar chandelier system at the church entrance. The light from this system illuminates most of the crosses, but does not reach the team's hiding place. Those captives who appear in the light do not show standard signs of the beige-colored SCP-610 infection, but instead are wrapped in a red variant of it, which shows signs of constant motion, rippling across itself in waves. From outside the church, a flood of SCP-610 infected shambles quickly into the area, ignoring the man who lit the candles, and stands in the middle of the room. They proceed to the captives on the wooden circle and begin to pull at the red SCP-610 masses, resulting in further screams and cries. From what can be gathered from the returned video feed, the red SCP-610 seems to be connected to the captives and is using them as a source of substance that it then uses to grow and feed the normal SCP-610 infected. Overly zealous infected tear at the red mass too hard, which results in pulling skin and tissue from the human captive beneath. The exposed area is quickly covered over by the red mass, which then grows in size. Feeding like this continues for approximately 6 minutes, at which time the candle-bearing figure sounds a gong, and all infected entities move to the pews. There are several more creatures than seats, but none move past the, front- the frontmost pews. The figure who sounded the gong does not move, spontaneously collapsing as if made from hollow clay. From the pulpit, activity is noticed as a pillar of SCP-610 flesh rises through the hole and extends, directing itself towards the gathered creatures. No sound is heard, and no motion is recorded once the pillar stops moving. The silent period persists for 10 minutes, without even the human captives making a sound, having fallen silent at an unknown point. The pillar of SCP-610 retracts back into the hole it emerged from without any warning, prompting the departure of the infected from the building. The candles remain lit, and the team emerges after all the infected appear to leave the area. The descended captives remain at ground level as well, all screaming seeming to have ceased, but still showing signs of life with heavy breathing and movement. Upon departure from the church, camera feeds from all three members become erratic, Camera 1 ceases transmitting completely, Camera 2 shoots straight up into the air for several meters, and Camera 3 captures the member with Camera 2 being flung by a tendril that emerges out from the ground itself, swinging them out of sight onto the other side of the ruins. Camera 1's feed is restored, and displays Camera 3's owner running briefly in the direction of the lost team member, only to turn and run back as SCP-610 infected pour from between the buildings. Combat ensues between the two members and the onrushing infected, with the two members using assault rifles and personal flame units, successfully driving back enough of the horde to make an escape towards the buggy. Passing by a building, Camera 1's owner is ambushed by a figure resembling who was in the church lighting the candles, wielding a large crop scythe. Camera 3's owner continues without pause towards the buggy location. However, the buggy is found half-absorbed by the SCP-610 mass covering the floor. While turning to find another way of escape, Camera 3's owner turns to find the same figure with the scythe approaching, weapons raised. Two shots are fired and the camera feed ends. Five hours later, while final decisions were underway to decide how to contain or eradicate the SCP-610 threat, time-delayed video feed from the lost team members who fell into the underground river currents was established and has been filed in SCP-610-L6. This would be the point in which I would read SCP-610-L6, but it's a reminder that this document has been classified beyond the reach of this training video and will not be included for the remainder. That concludes the file of SCP-610. And that brings us to the end of today's lesson. I hope you found the previous files to be informative and to properly, at least somewhat, prepare you for Life at the Foundation. I will see you next week at 9pm Atlantic on CHSR 97.9 FM in the Fredericton region, on www.chsrfm.ca online, or on your favorite podcast platform for your next lesson. And as we close, I would like to give a thanks to those in real life who contributed to the production of this episode. In particular, I would like to thank, first, Kevin McLeod, who produced the music you can find in the background of this episode. You can find the background tracks that I used, and more, at incomptech.com, all under the Creative Commons with Attribution 4 license. I would also like to thank the previously mentioned SCP author, whose content was provided under the Creative Commons with Attribution 3 license on the SCP wiki.